So change is hard, and no one ever said that healthcare could improve patient experience just like that. But it's worth asking whether organizations are on the right track, especially since surveys and anecdotal information suggest that too many patients aren't noticing or encountering the improvements so many health systems are working so hard on. Indeed, it's often just the opposite with all the frustration and discouragement that goes along with negative experiences. So what's going on? Well, we will definitely need your help for that, but we also have a panel looking at this issue because they're concerned that good work and best intentions may not always be hitting the mark. So we're going to try and sort this out together on this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome you to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you live bi-weekly and after the show via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. The focus of today's show taps into a session one of our panelists, Martha Hayward, will be leading at IHI's National Forum coming up in December in Orlando. So we thought we'd get a head start on the conversation with Martha on today's WIHI. And a reminder that this is also about identifying what's working and building on that knowledge, too. So I'm going to get right to introductions, but first, here's IHI's John Gothier to remind all the WIHI listeners today about how to make the most of your time with us. John. All right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. On the right of our screen is the chat window, and if you tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions, so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto your computer and listening to WIHI by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the hosts in the chat. A simple solution to any audio hiccup may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. We have their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I'll provide a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by the guests. You can also email info at IHI.org and we'll send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI. Please take the time after the program to fill out a quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Madge. All right. Thanks so much, John. And we always love it when people chat in the weather forecast in your neck of the woods uh, as we uh, round the corner with fall here. We're going to turn to the chat and your comments and questions at about the halfway mark of the show. And we do welcome tweeting during and after the program. And if you could include at the IHI and the hashtag WIHI in your tweets, we can capture the conversation uh, and connect it up with some of our networks. If you are only tuned into WIHI, by phone and you're not logged into a computer, you are welcome to email info at IHI.org to get a hold of all the materials materials we'll be sharing on the show. All right, let me get right to those introductions then. Joining us by phone is Cody Mullen, Network Development Coordinator for the Indiana Rural Health Association and a doctoral candidate in health policy and management at the Fairbanks School of Public Health. Cody has research interests in quality of care and access to care for vulnerable populations and individuals with intellectual developmental disabilities. I want to welcome you, Cody. Thank you for having me. 
Fantastic. Also on the phone, we have Bob Doherty. He's Senior Vice President of Governmental Affairs and Public Policy for the American College of Physicians. Bob writes a monthly Washington Perspectives column in the ACP Internist and is a guest blogger for the Philadelphia Inquirer's Health Sense blog. That's how we found him. Welcome, Bob. Glad to be here. I want to also welcome Cherie Wilson to WIHI. Cherie is a nationally recognized expert in diversity and inclusion, cultural and linguistic competence, and health equity. And uh, from her bio and many others, you can see how busy everyone has been, and we're so glad that we could barge in on everyone's schedule for our show today. And last but never least, in the studio with me is Martha Hayward. She is IHI faculty and patient advisor, focused on bringing patients and families into the design of all work to accelerate improvement of healthcare delivery. Martha has served as lead for public and patient engagement at IHI and as a cancer survivor was active in the patient and family advisory council at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Great to have you here, Martha. I love being here with you, Matt. Thank you, Martha. Very instrumental in getting this show together. All right, Martha, we're going to kick this right off. The title of your upcoming forum session is, Are We Improving the Patient Experience? So I thought, let's ask you to answer this question. Okay, before I get started, I'm, I've been watch, watch, looking at the chat, and everybody's chatting in great um, weather from around the country, and I'm also very aware we're not hearing from anybody in Florida, and I just want to send a shout-out to all the people who may be having their lives interrupted in a very scary way right now. And then a shout-out to Barbara Ballack, who's watching the hot air balloons in in Albuquerque. So anyway, um, this idea of this question of whether uh, the patient experience is really being affected by patient-centered care has been in my mind and on my mind for a very, very long time. Uh, I come to this work as a patient and a patient who was completely satisfied with the with my treatment and and the way that I was treated as I went through my cancer experience. Um, And I use that word satisfied very purposely. Uh, But there were so many elements missing from that experience that I've, and and with my work with with, with, um, IHI, I've been exposed to so many organizations that are working so hard to improve or focus on patient-centered care. And my big question is, are we really making a difference to the patients? When I was on a, um, when I was on a patient family advisory council, my background is in communications and I was on a communications committee. And there was a tremendous focus on some information that needed to get to patients that would both be, uh, introductory to them and also there was a legal issue involved and all patients needed to receive this information before coming into the hospital. And we went through the whole process and then I thought about my own experience and realized that the process that had been set up to ensure that all patients would always get this uh, material would not have affected my case. And so I raised that and I said, but still I would have not received this. And somebody said, well, but that's just one case. And I share this because we often um, demean or don't pay close attention to what we call anecdotal information or one-off stories. And my focus is if we have one patient who isn't always receiving and having a good experience, then don't we have a process that's ineffective? Because how can we count exactly how many people are having 
are not experiencing the things that we want them to experience. And a lot of patient-centered care is focused on processes that take place in one place at one time. And my question is really for the panel um, and for all of us out there, is there a, an overarching, a, a higher ground that we need to reach to that is around that scary word culture that has to do with attitude and respect, dignity, the things that patients name as those things that are most important to them? And how do we make those things always be present? Those things that are most important to patients always be present. You know, the, the question of warm welcome. That sounds like a, 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 a fuzzy idea, you know, a cozy little idea. Well, the truth of the matter is when a patient enters into a space, and I've had this experience a number of times, when a patient enters into, into a, a space that they're in a state of fear or crisis, and they walk into that space and they don't feel welcome, all their mechanisms sort of shut down and become fearful. They're not open, they're not relaxed. And so you initiate a relationship with a patient if you, if you don't set the right tone with every person every time. You know, when a person comes into a doctor's office, and this happened to me not six weeks ago, I went to a new doctor that I had never been to before and walked in um, to a closed glass window. And the woman behind the window put her finger up to me. She didn't open the window. She put her finger up to me and said, wait a minute, and turned her back to me and continued a conversation. I'm sure it was important. That didn't matter. I didn't feel welcome. I didn't know what atmosphere I was in, and I was on alert. So my goal is to bring the earnest and good work that people are doing in the area of patient-centered care to it really assess if it's reaching patients. And we can talk about, uh, you know, how do we measure that? If we're measuring it through HCAPs, well, HCAPs are not a patient-centered measurement at all. Um, we talk about patient satisfaction. Is that enough? So HCAPs measure satisfaction. That's not enough. We need to really attend to what is that patient experience and how is it affecting the care and the outcomes the patients are getting. Thanks so much, uh, Martha. I really appreciate that. And we're going to be building, I think, a lot on your remarks throughout the show. I know Cherie is going to take us into survey land a bit Mm -hmm. and uh, what we're getting from those and perhaps not and who's included and perhaps who's not. I'm going to turn now uh, to Cody Mullen. So, Cody, uh, you're up next. Tell us a little bit about your research and perhaps most importantly, your experiences with healthcare. And, and I, I already heard some terms that I think might resonate from what I understand about some of your experiences in terms of reliability um, and how one experience sometimes is one experience. And you don't, even if it's a good one, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to experience it in the next place you visit. So welcome, Cody. Appreciate your remarks. Well, thank you so much for, for having me. Um, and thank you, Martha, for that, that, that wonderful uh, thought process there as well. Um, definitely new thoughts to me as well as, as I reflect back on that. Um, but, yeah, I, I am in the healthcare field. I'm finishing my Ph.D. in health policy. I also work full-time for the Indiana Rural Health Association, uh, supporting rural hospitals around the state of Indiana with various initiatives. Um, but 
most importantly in my life, I'm a, I'm a brother, I'm a twin, and I'm a guardian uh, of my brother Seth, who has cerebral palsy. Uh, we were both, uh, our, our delivery was, was unique and, and left Seth to be a quadriplegic nonverbal. Um, and based in Indiana, we have doctors uh, scattered all around the country uh, that we've received care for, for him. Uh, we've gone as far south as Miami, Florida, uh, and our prayers are, are with Florida and, and the coast today. Um, as far north as, as Mayo and Minneapolis, and, and as far east or west, excuse me, as St. Louis, uh, for care. And and being also in the field, I teach about healthcare, and, and I always make sure that there's a piece of every class I teach where we touch on the patient experience, um, patient centeredness, and, and really try to drive home the patient family centeredness care. Um, because anytime someone's in the hospital, a lot of attention is and should be given towards the patient. Um, but sometimes the family is just as scared, if not more scared, uh, depending on what's happening and what communication is taking place. Um, we're in a very unique position with my brother being a nonverbal quadriplegic um, that we are involved in almost every decision that's made um, and every communication that's given. Um, but I can tell whenever another loved one is in the, in the facility how much information the family uh, does not receive. Um, but I get caught in the trap of discussing patient-centered care and using a definition out of a textbook or using a definition that's shared through a YouTube video that, that gets to that essence without really getting into um, the story that patient-centeredness really, really can be. Um, it really needs to be unique to each patient. We've had the experience of going all around the country for care, and every time we go to a new facility for a different type of care, it is always a terrifying experience. Um, my family is always terrified. I, I'm, I'm extremely terrified knowing everything um, from the back end. Um, but you don't know. You might pull up. We pulled up to one facility, and there's a banner. It's probably 50 feet long saying, number one in patient-centeredness care. And my parents looked at me and said, that's a good sign, right? And I said, yeah, it is, until we got in the facility and found that their approach to patient-centeredness was not the approach that we had experienced uh, before. Um, and it was very uh, scary for my family um, as they're like, well, this is not how we're used to things being done. I say, we would, ex you know, I would sit down and explain uh, that this is a different facility and it's different. But going away from, from that one facility, we very much got that feeling that we were guests. This is someone's place of employment. This was their, their employment home. Um, but we were just passing through um, as guests through that facility um, and were never meant to feel whole. Um, so what does that look like from a family perspective? Uh, it's very difficult, but it's simple questions like, what matters to you? What can I do to help? Um, what can I do to, to, to um, how, how do you function as a family? Um, usually I, I get right in there and assist with as much as I can do because I do it at home for my brother. So in the facilities, some facilities take that as very offensive, saying, you don't believe we're doing our jobs, so you're doing it for us. I said, no, I'm simply trying to help out and doing what I do every other day when I'm not within the confines of a hospital. Um, it's just what I'm doing. Um, so I'm not trying to step on toes or hurt, but it's the communication. It's the thought process. Um, so I'm really excited for, for today's conversation amongst the panelists and then the discussion that hopefully we'll have after, after we share our perspective and then also uh, continuing the conversation at uh, the forum in December. 
Wonderful. That's right, Cody. You'll be part of the session with Martha uh, at the National Forum. Um, and I look forward, and I think probably listeners do too, We uh, maybe, Cody, during Q&A, uh, before the hour's up, you can give us some ideas about what have been some of the more model experiences you've had um, that could possibly, you know, set the bar, you know, um, for greater consistency, which you have definitely let us know is, is really lacking. So thanks, Cody. All right, I want to bring Bob Doherty uh, from ACP in here next. And uh, it is true. What I said earlier that I uh, bumped into an article by Bob Doherty. I didn't know he was a regular blogger uh, for ACP and a contributor to the Philly News. Uh, and I shared the piece with Martha, and we said, both said, "Yes, let's let's reach out to Bob." And Bob is very uh, focused on a particular story that I think he felt said spoke volumes about some things, even though it's a very unique story. Uh, it's really the story of someone you didn't know, Bob, that uh, really prompted some of your own writing. You titled your article in the Philly News, Patient-Centered Care is All the Rage, but why are so, so few patients receiving it? So there's a question mark there, too, and I guess my question to you is, uh, do we know that's really the case, and uh, what do you think is going on? And welcome again, Bob, and we'll move your slides along for you. Thanks. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I, I really came to this issue partly from my over 30 years as an advocate for physicians and patients and promoting the idea of patient-centered care. But in particular, I was troubled and yet inspired by the story of Jess Jacobs, uh, who was a patient who unfortunately passed away this summer, a young woman, extraordinary young woman by all accounts, who blogged, her own account, her, blogged about her own encounters with the healthcare system. And I first became aware of Jess from a tweet actually by, from Andy Slavitt, the uh, acting administrator at CMS. On August 15, early in the morning, he, he tweeted, quote, if you want to read a patient-centered analysis of a healthcare experience, read this by Jess Jacobs. She just died. And he included a link uh, to, uh, to Jess's uh, blog. And so I was drawn to learn more about her and to find out what, what happened to her, what her experiences were. And interestingly, an article I read about her that said she was an upbeat, empowered patient and an innovator. Interestingly, um, I don't think she felt that empowered. She was clearly an innovator, but by her own account, she was not empowered within the healthcare system. So I want to talk more about her and try to channel her voice if I can. If you read her blogs, I was struck by her grace and humor, even as she evidently suffered greatly, not only from her medical conditions, but from a healthcare system that failed her. I was impressed by how Jess was able to document, as only someone who worked in the healthcare industry might have been able to do, her experiences, including minute-by-minute -minute estimates of the wasted time she spent trying to coordinate her own care. And I asked myself, what can I do to make things better? So I blogged about Jess in the ACP Advocate blog on August 17, and then in the Philadelphia Inquirer on August 30. What really matters is not what I have to say about Jess, what she had to say. And I just put up one of the slides here is where she documented her experiences with the healthcare system and how much time she felt she wasted. And this goes back to November 15, 2014. She wrote, quote, this past year, year I've had 20 ER visits leading to nine hospitalizations spanning 54 days. I haven't had a single vacation that hasn't been spent in or at the hospital this year. I only get so much time, and if I'm wasting it, being stressed out by nurses and back-channeling doctors to coordinate care, I'm not using the time to heal. I understand that my case is complicated and it takes a significant amount of time to coordinate. 
There's no reason I need to be physically be in the physician's office or at the hospital while they make phone calls on my, on my behalf. There's no reason a four-hour transfusion requires 84 hours of negotiation and frustration. There's no reason that only 4.75% outpatient visits and 0.8% of my hospitalizations are spent actively treating my condition. There's no reason I spent two solid months, 1,540 hours, 64.2 days of this year, waiting and steady healing. She concludes that blog post with a heartfelt plea, so please stop wasting my time, stop wasting my life. This is from a young woman who we now know did not have much time to left to waste. Next slide, please. Sure. On May 31st, just blogged about a hospital that say that she calls the worst experience of my life. I challenge all of you to read it and not be brought to tears as I was when I first read it. What amazed me is that Jess was mostly concerned about her roommate who had sickle cell anemia was treated, not how she herself was treated. Quote, when the nurses couldn't hear the physical bells my roommate and I were given, I resorted to calling the nursing station on my cell phone. My roommate did not have a cell phone. I ended up relaying her request by calling the nurse's station each time my roommate rang her physical bell. As such, I didn't sleep the entire time. Or those communication issues are simply annoyances in comparison to human torture of a fellow human being experiencing unrelenting pain. Pain just reported the hospital, its physicians, and its nurses were unable or unwilling to address. Quote, this experience of complete powerlessness in the face of another person's pain is, bar none, the most profoundly heartbreaking experience of my life. She concludes with this. It saddens me that as a simple patient, my voice wasn't heard. And I think we need to think about this. As long as any patient says, as a simple patient, my voice wasn't heard, we are failing to deliver the patient-centered care we have promised. My purpose in blogging about Jess was to help her voice be heard. Now, I've gotten some interesting reactions to physicians, and I work for physicians. American College of Physicians represents internal medicine for physicians. I heard from physicians, including some very close friends of Jess's, who, who are empowered by her to advocate on her behalf, but who themselves felt powerlessness in their efforts to make things better for her. I heard from physicians who agree her experience is terrible, but they tended to point to the system as the problem, not the doctors and nurses who cared for her. I heard from a small number of physicians who defensively lashed out, because they felt that the medical profession was being unfairly blamed. Let me say that I have considerable sympathy for the majority of committed physicians and nurses who are doing the best they can in a system that seems to put the interests of everyone else above the patient. But I don't think blaming the system is a satisfactory response. We created the system, all of us, and we need to change it, all of us. And I think this starts with ensuring that Jess's voice and the voice of other, quote, simple patients like her are heard. Then we must diagnose this, why the system failed her, and prescribe treatments to make it better so it truly becomes patient-centered, not insurance-centered, not hospital-centered, not nurse-centered, not EHR-centered, and not physician-centered, but patient-centered. I think we know what some of the solutions are. We need to create better connections between the many different clinicians involved in the patient's care. We need to free up doctors and nurses' time so they spend less on administrative tasks and entering data into EHRs and more time sharing decision-making with their patients and other clinicians involved in the care. We need to truly commit to models of team-based care like patient-centered medical homes with everyone on the team that is involved in the care of a patient being allowed to practice the full extent of their training. But I think it all starts with ensuring that the voice of the simple patient is present and heard, and heard at all times, and that's what I've tried to do in my blog posts and what I'm hoping to do today. Thank you so much, Bob. And um, uh, we did provide some of the links to your material, and people can learn more about Jess if you weren't familiar um, and I think some of the comments that Bob just made, I, I, it, I think one of the themes in a way is that we're hearing that we can learn a lot from stories 
and they are some of the evidence and the data uh, that people need to be paying attention to. And um, that's one of the things I think, Martha, you brought up really right at the outset. Uh, it's not something to be tossed off of, oh, this was an unusual case or uh, that kind of thing. What What is it that we can learn? And if we're honest with ourselves, that these things happen in various ways, you know, with others, it just may not, somebody may not speak up about it because perhaps they're not in as um, um, difficult a situation. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, uh, anyway, message to myself, perhaps, (laughs) that I'm sharing with all of you. All right, I want to now, thank you, Bob, and more to come during our discussion. I want to now turn to Cherie Wilson. Uh, somebody I'm, we're all just getting to know too, and um, it's it's fantastic. So I guess, Cherie, I want to ask you, how do the issues we're discussing uh, that you're listening to along with everyone else look from the perspective of patients who may be people of color, Hispanic, others who face barriers in healthcare due to any number of factors? And uh, one big question and theme that I think you're going to help us with is, do we even know and is enough being done to find out? Thanks, Cherie. Great. Thank you, Madge. So uh, first, I wanted to send my thoughts out to those who have been affected by Hurricane Matthew, those in the Caribbean, Haiti, Jamaica, Bahamas, as well as the southeastern U.S., since we're talking about diverse voices. So much of what I'll be talking about is missing from the patient experience, diverse voices. So some of you may be repeat customers and may have, back on September 15th, participated in the WIHI on how healthcare can accelerate health equity. When we typically think of health equity, we think of disparities in access to care, treatment options, and patient outcomes. But how does this relate to the patient experience? So my title is a bit of a play on words on a report that was from the Sullivan Commission about missing persons, minorities in the health professions, published back in 2004. Certain groups have often been underrepresented or excluded from the patient experience, such as Madge mentioned, racial and ethnic, linguistic, sexual, gender, and disability minorities. Without these diverse voices, we are not getting a complete picture of the services and care we're providing to our patients. Many studies have demonstrated that poor patient experience contributes to mistrust and lower adherence to medication and treatment regimens, which leads to worse patient outcomes. The September 15th WIHI that I referenced spoke extensively about the role that implicit or unconscious bias, as well as explicit bias such as isms like racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, and classism, play in the delivery of health care and patient outcomes. Implicit and explicit bias should also be taken into consideration when we discuss the patient experience. Next slide, please. Okay. So as Martha mentioned, Martha, I completely agree with you. Martha said that surveys do not necessarily get to the patient experience, and they're basically our sole way that we typically do currently survey our patients. Most of you are familiar with the HCAPs for hospitals and CAPs for all the other different areas that we're talking about, mainly as a component of value-based purchasing and reimbursement. Next slide, please. So who actually responds to your patient experience surveys? Oftentimes, we look at our response rates in the aggregate, but we really need to start looking at them by group. So if you want to start looking by race, ethnicity, and language, First, you have to have accurate real, or what we call race, ethnicity, and preferred language data collection. This includes training for your staff so they don't eyeball, and what we mean is looking at a patient and assuming the patient's race or ethnicity, or earball, and that's where you assume that a patient who speaks English has English as a preferred language. Or we go a step further and we take a patient with a foreign-sounding last name, and we assume that person has a preferred language other than English. For example... 
assuming a patient with the last name of Rodriguez has a preferred language of Spanish when that patient's preferred language could be English, Spanish, or even Tagalog from the Philippines. We sometimes can look and drill down by age. So how do our pediatric patients and their parents look at us versus our 65 and older population? What about socioeconomic status? And we oftentimes can use insurance status or zip code as a proxy. For our LGBT population or lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender population, the Human Rights Campaign Healthcare Equality Index has said that some organizations have successfully added sexual orientation and gender identity to their electronic health records, and then they're going a step further and adding it to their patient experience survey instruments. This is something that can typically be accomplished by working with your own survey vendor. And then lastly, getting to literacy, looking at the level of education. So one issue we may have, though, is that if your response rate inadequately reflects your patient population, what do you do to improve participation? You could start by oversampling certain groups. You could engage in multimodal survey administration. So some places will actually administer their surveys by mail, telephone, as well as interactive voice recognition. That's for HCAPs. You could partner with community organizations and talk about why it's really important to respond to these surveys because we use this data to try to improve the care for all patients. And in addition to going to these community organizations, we need to let them know that not only are we reviewing the data, but we're actually acting on the data. Next slide, please. So if we start asking, do patients receive surveys in their preferred language? In order to do that, again, you have to capture the patient's preferred language accurately. If I'm a Spanish-speaking patient and you mail me an English language survey, it's very unlikely that I'll return it. And then regardless of the language in which the survey is administered, we need to be mindful of our patient's level of literacy. Next slide, please. We tend to only use aggregate data as an indication of our performance, and it would be really helpful to start stratifying question responses by group and reviewing for differences and disparities. Now, while I recognize that the sample sizes may be small at first, you may consider aggregating that data quarterly or even semi-annually. And if differences and disparities are identified, you really do need to probe deeper. I was reading through the comments, and I think one of the participants, Patty Webster, said that comments and stories are a great part of the QI approach, and I wholeheartedly agree with that. And so one suggestion to get beyond just the numbers, because as we know, those numbers actually reflect people with families and loved ones and community members, perhaps we should look at those patient comments, which may reveal issues or concerns, or even conduct focus groups or interviews with these patients of various groups. They can let us know what's going well, what's not going well, as well as own suggestions for improvements. These would be great in helping us to figure out what we need to focus on next. And then we also need to be mindful of how cultural and linguistic competence plus implicit and explicit bias relate to the patient experience. A few thoughts. Did we treat the patient with dignity and respect? Did we note the patient's cultural, linguistic, and spiritual needs? Did we grimace while asking a black mom who presented to the ED with her injured child whether the father was still in the picture before we happened to notice her wedding dance? Did we use an interpreter when needed, or did we rely upon hand gestures because it was more convenient? Were we abrupt and impatient because we didn't feel like dealing with a group of family members who had congregated for a family meeting? Did we acknowledge the patient's same-sex spouse, or were we curt because the situation made us feel uncomfortable? Did we talk down to the patient because we assumed she was homeless, uninsured, and functionally illiterate? Did a staff member make disparaging remarks about a patient because of his weight? Next slide. 
So another way to capture feedback that you may not normally get through your traditional surveys are to perhaps take a look at some of the supplemental items that are available, and this allows you to customize your surveys. Currently, the adult HCAP survey has supplemental items dealing with both health literacy and interpreter services, and you can then review those list of supplemental items to determine which would be most appropriate for your organization and add them to your survey with the assistance of your survey vendor. Next slide, please. And then for those who are using CAPS, for the clinician and a group, both for adult and child, their two areas of supplemental items have to deal with access and patient-centered medical home. Next slide. So basically, the main take-home points of my comments are, when you're looking at your response rates, don't just look in the aggregate, but start looking at subgroups. Administer surveys in the patient's preferred language. Stratify your data by demographic characteristics. Use this data to identify differences, disparities, and opportunities for improvement, and then enhance your survey instruments with supplemental items that allow you to create customized surveys. Thank you, Madge. Okay. Thank you, Cherie. And uh, if it's okay with you, and maybe Martha can weigh in here, um, I'm, I'm curious to what extent we're aware uh, of um, stories. I mean, do, do healthcare organizations and are we hearing, in addition to the survey uh, area that you've just been talking about, do you think that there is enough diversity even in the stories that we're hearing about or are those stories in many ways being shared far away <laughs> um, by groups that otherwise feel vulnerable and marginalized and, you know, somehow they don't even rise uh, to our attention. I don't know if, Cherie, you have any sense of that. Um, it's, it's a big question, but um, just curious. Yes, no, that's a great question, Madge. Thank you. So um, I think Martha mentioned at the beginning, oftentimes we have patient and family councils. And that is a place where people can share stories oftentimes, but are those groups diverse? I do know that at one hospital, one hospital with which I worked, they had a large Latino population. So they actually formed a Latino-specific family council. It was conducted in Spanish. They provided child care. They provided a stipend for transportation. And this was a great um, mechanism for feedback. And how so, I'll give you an example. So this was during um, enrollment for the Affordable Care Act. A number of us had compiled all these different materials, and we thought, oh, this is great. This is what the community wants. Well, we actually ran these materials by the group. They hated all of them, frankly. So can you imagine if we had spent all this money printing these materials, disseminating them, and they ended up pretty much in the circular file? You know, And they really told us, this is what we need. These are our concerns. I want this paragraph from this one. Reword this. Do that. And they really saved us from basically a huge fiasco. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks, Cherie, so much. Just before we go to chat, Martha, any thoughts uh, based on what we've we've heard? Thanks. The two words that are really uh, uh, sticking in my head right now are leadership and system. And I have a real question: Can this can patient-centered care? <clears throat> I'm going to be stronger about it and say it is my belief that true patient-centeredness that really reflects in the patient experience begins and ends with powerful, powerful leadership. Leadership believing in this at every level, that it is a driving force for how a an institution treats people. Without that, you miss the mark on why are we doing this. So I'm telling stories, but why are we, if, we, if you're not returning always to that question, why? 
then you lose the meaning. Um, the uh, the other my other thought having to do with system is you know Bob had said uh, it's not the doctors and nurses. Well, first of all, it, it's the doctors, the nurses, the cafeteria workers, the patient experience, and the Barrel Institute has the has a vi- the best I think uh, uh, definition of what the patient experience is, and it includes um, interactions, all interactions. Because the patient experience is a culmination of all interactions. And my interaction on the way out the door can be more powerful um, and more meaningful to my experience, negatively or positively, than that with my physician even. Um, and and the, the system, you know, we know this, that the system is always the problem. And in order for the system to be patient-centered, it has got to be led and driven home in every moment and in everything that we do. And then finally, the word always. Um, I, you know, we the IHI um, is the steward of the always events that were created by the Picker Institute. And when, when I think of this word always, it, it always means always. Not sometimes, not with white people, not with Hispanic people, not with women, not with men. Always. And if we can, you know, if we can start to shift our thinking to the patient experience always is at the center, maybe we'll get somewhere here. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. I want to just thank our panel for this first half hour now, and also those of you who are already uh, conversing with one another on the chat, and you have bubbled up uh, some questions. And while I scan very, very quickly, John's going to remind you how, uh, remind everyone how you can chat in your questions so everyone can see them. Thanks, John. Yeah, please make sure that your questions and comments are addressed to the send to bar all to all participants down at the bottom right-hand corner of your screen. Okay. Well, a lot of different interesting issues coming up here, and I'll get to some of the questions. I see there's been some back and forth about whether the the equivalent of sort of mystery shoppers noticing things in organizations is is uh, is, is effective. Um, and somebody had also asked about um, you know something that's been very um, uh, resonant at least for a while. Maybe uh, we can discuss whether it still is. Is that good customer experience, healthcare can learn a lot from other industries. And um, I guess I'm wondering, you know, do we feel that as strongly as ever uh, these days? Um, I don't know if, if you, Martha, have any thoughts on that. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll first ask Bob that. Uh, does that still kind of resonate, you know, that somehow we got to learn from other service industries? Uh, or do we still have something very unique going on uh, in healthcare and we it behooves us to really start inventing uh, and becoming a standard ourselves. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's obviously always space to learn from other industries and best practices, and certainly from best practices within the healthcare system itself. Having said that, in healthcare, I think, is fundamentally different than almost any other industry I can think of, because obviously you're not only talking about uh, human beings and their, their lives, just where they suffer unnecessarily, uh, whether they get access to the care they need at the time they need, and the bewildering experience of people who end up uh, suddenly and often unexpectedly needing care and trying to figure out what's going on. And getting back to Jess Jacobs, um, and, I, and I know these are stories, but what was unique about her experience is she documented her stories in a way I've never seen anybody do before. And I think in a way that would never be caught on a patient, in a caption a patient experience survey, 
But, you know, part of the problem, I think, when we talk about the system, and by no means do I mean to imply that it's not the doctors and the nurses. It is the doctors and the nurses and the hospital and the people at the front desk and everybody else who have are working within a, in a system or environment where people like Jess have, were not put, put at the center of care. But one of the things that she documented is that she saw by, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve different physician specialties, multiple hospital stays, not all at the same hospital, ambulance services, etc. Now, she may be sort of an extreme in terms of how many encounters she had with how many different specialists and how many different healthcare mm-hmm. systems, but I think that's one of the challenges. Within a closed system, you may be able to change the culture in that system so that particular hospital or that particular group practice really does put the patient first. But what do you do with somebody like Jess, which I think is, is not that unusual, who are seeing different physicians in different offices, different hospitals, different facilities, and trying to fit that into some kind of coordinated model? And I think in some ways it's that fragmentation, that siloed healthcare system that we have that is one of our biggest challenges. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I'm going to, just to make sure we get as many things in as we can, I'm going to pop over now to another question that came up. It's coming up in a couple of different ways. Uh, maybe, uh, Cherie, I'll ask you about, uh, somebody is asking, I guess it's Patty Webster, asking about the ability of more diverse groups to be designing uh, some of the survey uh, work, uh, survey instruments that are out there right now. Um, and another question about to you know good ways to really work hard on a patient family advisory councils so that they are not um, skewed uh, towards you know the the widest or you know the most activated uh, patients uh, in in the population. But uh, and any thoughts on either or both of those? Uh, yes, Madge. And yeah, I think a couple of people asked that too. So part of it is not reaching out to the usual patients. I think someone made a comment here that we usually get patient stories from our most, uh, maybe uh, most articulate patients, patients that fit a certain profile. Here is reaching out to community organizations, maybe working through pastoral care to get to your faith-based organizations. Um, one deterrent could be if you're looking at social determinants, what are barriers to people participating? Are we holding, for example, meetings in the middle of the day when people might be working? Or if we're holding something in the evening and people have childcare issues, are we providing childcare? Is there a stipend associated with this? Are there transportation vouchers? How can we offset this? So those are some of the best practices I have heard from some organizations around the country that are starting to reach their diverse populations. And then as far as having more diverse uh, patients or those who typically aren't participating in surveys, um, we have Karen Ginsburg here. Thank you, Karen. She's the director of the CAPS work at ARC. Um, some people are doing, of course, the, the traditional surveys, HCAPS, CAPS, because they need to do that for reimbursement, but they're doing other surveys or they're doing focus groups, or they're doing interviews or part of their community health needs assessments. They're doing key interviews with the community to get, again, to those stories that they would not normally capture through this mechanism. Okay. Well, that's very, very encouraging. Uh, thank you. Cody, uh, I, I wanted to ask you, I, I said I might come back to you and, and sort of ask 
what where have you you don't have to name names but what has exemplified a better experience would you say um for you and your family and your brother including your brother um things that you would maybe hope to see spread <laughs> uh kind of memorable experiences perhaps because of how positive yeah we had one experience uh, earlier this year and I won't name the facility out of respect um, but I could definitely tell that it was a culture amongst every employee, regardless of if you were there at 5 a.m. making the coffee at the coffee shop, up to the physician and, and main providers, um, to engage with patients, um, make them feel comfortable, offer assistance. Um, if a request came your direction that was either outside of your position or you're currently occupied, to identify who exactly you're going to reach out to and at what time to get someone to assist you with, with that request. Um, or if there's a request for more information, it wasn't a burden on them to, to generate that information for the, for the patient and the family. Um, everyone, uh, you know, the person that really sticks out my mind from that experience was, was the gentleman that brought breakfast and lunch each day. Um, and I always asked, how are you today? Is there anything else we can do for you? Um, very simple question, um, very simple, you know, desire, you know, I was on a work call one time and I made sure they're very quiet to not, not disrupt me. Um, and it's little things like that that go a long way when you're there. Um, when you're spending 24 hours in a, in a tiny room, uh, we spent 35 days at this facility. Um, they just accumulate into a peaceful, um, and it was actually very happy after 35 days to be going home, but very sad to be, be leaving our friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was great that the staff made us feel so comfortable so quickly. So that, thank you very much, Cody. That really speaks to this issue about um, some of those things. We, we think of them, as you said earlier, Martha, fuzzy, sort of intangible. What does it mean to feel respected, uh, welcomed, uh, connected with everyone? Thoughts about what Cody just said? Well, <clears throat> First that he said that everybody, he could feel it from the person who was making coffee at five o'clock in the morning. To me, there's, there, he was in a, he was in a setting, he and his family were in a setting where everybody was infused with like thinking and a mission driven toward one thing, which was patience and their families. Um, when Cody talks about the little things, this is where my frustration has been over the past um, 10 years that I've been working in um, healthcare improvement, and that is that we go in and we do uh, improvement projects, and they show results and they have an effect in that setting. And before they can even spread, we have a change of leadership, we have a change in nursing staff, and there's not this overriding driving force that's going to push that forward. And so Cody just talked about his family being, I think you said 35 days, which is astounding. Um, but that, that continued over 35 days. I'm sure there were nurses, nurse changes and doctor changes. I'm sure that maybe they had a complete change in leadership at the time, but his family did not experience that. And too often, patient-centeredness and the patient experience are optional to think about. And so if the right leadership is in place, and I'm seeing this happen in a number of locations around the United States, some of our exemplars have had changes in leadership, and suddenly there's a complete shift in how people focus on and, and the, um, the gravity given to the patient experience. 
that they experience that consistently over that for 35 days and throughout the organization, that to me is the organization that we should all be, the experience we should all be having in every one of our organizations. And, you know, people are talking about transitions. Well, if we had consistency of priorities throughout the, the United States, if we had uh, does it take a revolution of patients and families to say, these are our expectations and nothing else will do? I don't know how, if you can hear in my voice frustration, it's because I live every day of my life thinking of the people who are suffering as we're sitting here having this conversation, unnecessarily suffering from you know, the, the, the most serious form of physical suffering to just that simple feeling of, of fear and being disoriented. You know, we talk about, I just need to mention around the, the patient satisfaction and this whole idea of con, the patient is consumer. The patient is not a consumer. They did not walk in to make a choice. They are making choices, but they are in, in a victim setting. They're not at the gap. They're not looking for a new pair of pants. And it's very, very important that we always keep that in mind. Yes, there are things to learn from the from other industries, but we have to appreciate the very unique nature of the healthcare industry. And if anything, it requires even more focus on that person with whom we are engaging as an institution. Thanks so much, Martha. And um, I want to also, again, comment the chat is is robust. People are having a good conversation. It's like we've got a lot of conversations going. I want to encourage any of you who do have resources that you're using in your own organization that you think speak to some of the themes and improvements we're talking about today, and if you'd be willing to share them with us, you can email them to info at IHI.org, and they'll get uh, back to the WHI crew, or if you can uh, provide a link uh, or some information uh, in the chat. We'll make sure everyone gets that, and it will be added to our resource document. Um, so, can I give one resource? Oh, oh sorry, here because it's an IHI resource, sure, which ahead. is um, the Always Events uh, on. If you go to IHI.org, uh, I, I think that Always Events, the very nature of Always Events, um, and that they are first and foremost focused on those things that are reported to be important to patients. That's the basis of them. Um, and that they're always, um, it addresses a lot of things. I, I offer that as a resource. Thanks. I also want to ask uh, any of you who are tuned in, and there are many of you, um, I'm curious whether uh, what you would say um, to whether you also sort of feel some of Martha's frustration, and I think the frustration amongst our panelists, even as everyone is in for the long haul and moving forward on this issue, um, I could maybe surmise that by the fact that you've joined, but I'm curious whether you see that disconnect in your own organization. We didn't uh, set up a poll, so we're not doing anything even mildly scientific on today's WHI, but of uh, any of you, uh, ex you know, share that in terms of kind of what, what draws you to be talking about this topic topic, uh, since we do know there's a lot of work going on, and the last thing everybody wants to be doing is wasting their time on the wrong things, and I think these course corrections um, strike me as extremely important, and I hope they do for you. So anybody who feels like saying, yes, I share that frustration or uh, any other kind of frustration, please uh, feel free to mention that. I wanted to ask Bob, uh, uh, go back to some of your
your writing, um, Bob, about Jess's story and a little bit about physician response. And I think we see this from time to time in other uh, types of, uh, you know, engagements where people can comment online. Um, many of the, at least some of the physicians who uh, were upset about the story, uh, but many of them blamed it on the system. They said, in so many words, many of you, the doctors who replied, uh, that system changes were actually robbing them of quality time with patients and that uh, it, the, the layers and layers of distractions and obligations, et cetera, um, were in part to blame. And I'm just wondering, since I would suspect that bubbles around just about a lot of institutions right now, when people hear things that didn't go well uh, and everybody feels, well, I'm trying my hardest here. Um, what, what do you say at ACP or what do you, Bob Doherty, say? Yeah, I think there is a very real frustration that physicians, and I would probably say nurses as well, and other healthcare professionals have with, quote, the system, in that I do believe most physicians, nurses, uh, psychologists, social workers, et cetera, are committed to getting patients the best care they can. That's why they go into their fields. That's why they are healthcare professionals. But they feel that they are like the hamster on it on the, on the wheel that they are spending so many time so much time doing other things than patient care that they really don't have the time to focus their their attention on the patient to the extent they should and that we now have evidence that's true the annals of internal medicine we just published a story uh, a study that showed that physicians actually spent far more time on administrative tasks putting data into an EHR things like that than they actually spend in patient care. So I don't think it's an excuse to say that unless we are able to free up physicians and nurses from unproductive administrative tasks associated with insurance, insurance regulations, all those things, the HRs that really aren't working, then we're never going to get to where we need to be in terms of patient-centered care. Having said that, I also don't think it's, it's sufficient to say it's a system. Physicians have huge leadership responsibilities and authority and influence over their healthcare systems. And I think they can help drive a change in culture that really makes the system more patient-centered. Okay, thanks very much, Bob. I appreciate that. And again, thanks for folks who are chatting in some of what makes you passionate and, and determined about this work. It's good to see uh, your comments. We've, uh, we're speeding along here, and really I think now we've come to that point in the program where I think we've got to make some final remarks. And um, I guess uh, we'll start with Cody and kind of go around the horn. Cody, you've, uh, you're, you're kind of, uh, you've got a lot of family experience and you're in the field and you're about to you're just getting smarter by the day uh, with with your education um, what what kinds of thoughts would you like to leave us with today thanks Cody I, I just you know it's great to see so many people on the call today um, discussing this um, from a patient family perspective and, and from someone working in healthcare it's just great to see uh, the attention that this topic um, has, has got um, but I, I think going back to going back to everything that's being shared, it's asking the questions, making sure that, that the questions that are asked are not targeted towards uh, one population, um, but is a, an overall representation of everyone who, who you're touching, and recognizing that there may be differences between those answers, and that doesn't mean uh, try to find one solution to make everything work, 
but might be uh, find something that makes everyone feel comfortable or, or different things. So it, it's great, uh, and I look forward to the continuing conversation that will happen uh, virtually and, and at the forum and, and in the next few years on this topic. Thank you very much. Um, I really appreciate, Cody, all your help with today's program, and um, it's exciting that you'll be with Martha at the National Forum, and people can uh, hear more uh, about this issue and your experiences. Uh, Cherie, let me turn to you next. Um, you're busy. Uh, you and Bob both on, on the chat. Thanks for providing uh, links. Cherie has given us uh, a number of really good resources also that you'll find on our website uh, by tomorrow morning, so don't despair if you haven't gotten everything down. But Cherie, some final thoughts uh, where where this issue may be going. Thanks. Yes. Well, first of all, thank you to everyone for participating. But um, I, I've been trying to read through these comments fast and furiously. I'm just so glad that so many people are engaged in this topic. So I also want to put a plug in for Martha and Cody's session at IHI at the forum. But also, too, if you're really interested in seeing how this impacts diverse populations, there is a health equity track as well. And having looked through the program, there are different sessions that are talking about how can we engage those diverse populations whether it's disability, veterans, LGBT, uh, people of low socioeconomic status. So we have a lot of work to do, and I by no means wanted to say that surveys are our only way to do this, but as we are looking at our surveys, there's just so much more we could do with them. So I'll leave it with that. All right, fantastic. Thank you, uh, Cherie. Really appreciate all your involvement with today's program, uh, planning it, and then being with us today. Just huge. Okay. Bob Doherty, so will we see more blogs from you? Uh, I don't know about Jess in particular on this topic. Where, where does it go for you? Yeah, I mean, I certainly will be talking and blogging more about this and, and really need to close the chasm between the patient-centered principles we all articulate and the reality on the ground for so many patients. And let me just channel Jess one last time in repeating two of the things she said in her blog posts. Stop wasting my time. Stop wasting my life. And that the voice of the simple patient needs to be heard. And that's where I think we need to start. We need to stop wasting doctor's time, nurse's time, and patient's time with unproductive administrative tasks. And we make, need to make sure they're heard. And I think making sure they're heard includes making sure they're heard in real time, not just after the fact through surveys. And then just one final comment on healthcare disparities. One of the things Jess wrote about was what the sickle cell patient that she shared a room with. That patient did not even have a cell phone, so could get no attention from the nurses, whereas, whereas uh, Jess did call them repeatedly on her cell phone. That's one of the things we need to be sensitive. Something as simple as that with a huge difference in the responses, responses to, their, to, to their needs. Thank you very much. I think patients often encounter uh, these um, differences, you know, and uh, often come to each other's aid, uh, for sure, in these situations. Bob Doherty, I want, it's really been a pleasure making your acquaintance through this process, and I hope we all, you know, stay in, in dialogue with one another. Thanks so much for your contributions in the show today. Martha, you'll get some of the last words. Well, as always happens in conversations like these, it's such an enormous, it, it can feel, it can start to feel overwhelming and enormous. And I just want to bring us back to, um, yes, the system is broken in many ways, but we can't stand, we cannot allow people to suffer within the system. So let's work with the system that we have and focus on those things that will make a difference within that system. The story that I just want to close with is when I was on a patient family advisory council, there was a huge question around wait times, the, the, the low satisfaction scores around wait times, wait times. We went through months of this. 
And the after four months of examining the question of wait times, we came into a meeting and we said, what are the wait times like? And they said, the wait times haven't changed, but our satisfaction scores have skyrocketed. And the question was, well, how did that happen? And the answer was, we told the patients how long they'd have to wait. And I share that to say, we can make the patient's experience better within a broken system if we focus on what the patient really needs to have power and dignity, comfort and safety. All right, Martha Hayward, thank you so much. Uh, always great to have you uh, right here across the table and speaking on these issues. And thanks for helping to bring all these people together uh, for today's program. And I want to really thank our wonderful audience. Uh, you've been chatting, chattering away with one another. And that's a reminder. You can download when you get off the program today, you're, you're prompted uh, if you want to download slides and today's chat. And I encourage you to do so. But if you forget uh, the chat and all the slides and all the references to today's show will be up on the website as of tomorrow and Vicki Minden is right here in the studio with us keeping track of all of it as she always does for just an amazing resource document. Next up on WIHI on October 20th we're going to be talking about family caregivers. Uh, healthcare is uh, paying attention <laughs> to family caregivers in some very important new ways and uh, this is uh, promises to be uh, a very, very uh, important program and also very connected to patient experience. So I hope you'll join us for that, October 20th, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. That info is on the website as we speak. And I also want you to definitely check out the archive page tomorrow morning. And, of course, if you're a podcast listener, uh, you can subscribe to the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and you can get every one of these WIHIs passed. And as we go forward, uh, by downloading them that way, from iTunes or whatever your podcast server is. Any questions whatsoever, you can email info at IHI.org. The people who help make WIHI possible, wonderful list, John Gothier, Matt Morris, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Ruth James, and Haley Ladd. And I want to also thank Rebecca Goldberg because she's been tweeting today on Twitter. And it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. I almost said patient-centered care, but I should say that, patient-centered care most of all, for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Madge Kaplan. Thanks for being such amazing participants. Good day, everyone. <laughs>